We've, uh, we've uh, only got one week, I think, after this of Total Request Live. I think uh, Neil's going Neil's gonna to finish us out next week. Um, and then after that, uh, your, your chance is over. Your voice is being silenced. And uh, it's just going to be what Neil uh, thinks that you should hear from then on out. So if you haven't made your uh, requests now, uh, you may not get a chance. Um, so this week's request uh, <laughs> comes from uh, someone who, in the church who is uh, concerned, as many of us are, with the state of really our nation and indeed the enti- entire West, uh, Western civilization, um, concerned primarily by the fact or the idea that possibly we are entering into a post-Christian phase, that um, the West really was founded um, in Christianity and, and on Christian principles, and yet in the last, what would you say, um, it's, it, opinions vary, but it, it appears that we've been maybe uh, changing course, and that it very well could be that we are already in, or uh, will at some point in the near future be in a truly post-Christian state, a country that is utterly apostate. Um, if you're wondering why that might be, uh, you can just think about some of the, the social issues that the church faces. Um, notice that uh, Roe versus Wade, 1973, um, at which point um, abortion became legal across the land. In 1986, we had the peak of the nuclear arms race, at which point the West, uh, at least just the United States, uh, possessed over 40,000 um, nuclear warheads and had the capability to um, scorch the earth many times over. Uh, you can think about the wealth gap that's been in the, uh, the news of late. It's true that the top 0.1% of people in the United States of America have more combined wealth than the bottom 90%. Um, you can look at the statistics about internet pornography. Uh, 90% of uh, men and 60% of women are exposed to hardcore pornography on the internet before the age of 18. And uh, we could go on about uh, concerns about sexual ethics and what that looks like. And then, of course, most recently, and perhaps the impetus for our renewed concern is the decision Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which legalized uh, gay marriage across uh, the land. And there's concern that at every level of our social fabric, we are pushing farther and farther away uh, from the cross. Um, Whether it be our decisions with our bodies, whether it be our decisions with our wealth, whether it be our decisions to go or not to go to war, there is a concern that we are less and less Christian. Now, uh, the news isn't all bad, although it is not great. If you look, uh, 70.6% of Americans currently identify as Christian. That's either Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, or a various uh, Protestant. That's, however, down from 78.4% in 2007. 8% of the population has ceased identifying as Christian in the last eight years. Uh, And that, of course, is down from 91% in 1948. In 1948, the first time that we have uh, data, 91% of Americans identified as Christian. Now, what's really um, underneath that statistic, however, is is this. About only 17% of Americans attend church regularly. The official Pew poll will say 40%, but uh, scholars have investigated this, and there's a little thing called the halo effect, where when someone calls you up to ask you about your um, habits, you might wish that you went to church regularly, and so you say, oh yes, yes, I go to church regularly, although realistically you're there on Christmas and Easter. And so really, on a more or less week-to-week basis, we estimate that approximately 17% of Americans go to a Christian church. 
um, in their lives. Now, I would suggest to you that this is not exile. We are not in a situation where I, I am ready yet to say that this is, we've completely gone off the deep end, that Christianity has no voice in the culture or anything like that. But I do want to suggest that if that isn't the case, we at least appear to be heading in that direction. And if that continues, then you and I, those of us who are faithful uh, to God, have a question to ask ourselves. And that is namely, what does it look like for us to keep the faith if the culture abandons it entirely? What does it mean on a practical level for this congregation and for all faithful congregations to maintain their faith in light of a culture and ultimately a political state that is hostile? Uh, Rod Dreher, he's Roman Catholic and he's writing in the Catholic magazine First Things. He says this. He's, uh, he's, he's, a real, he's very pessimistic, perhaps more so than I am, but he says this. Some of us will live to see the day when Orthodox Christians will be considered exotic antiques at best. I think of the benign indifference with which many Europeans regard Christianity today. And threats to decency at worst. Potentially harmful individuals who must be driven out of public life. Mr. Dreher thinks that you and I will eventually be objects of scorn, hate, we will be reviled, and we will be pushed aside so that we have no voice whatsoever in the culture. Now, I can't say that that's the case, but it might be. Fortunately for us, if we do agree with this idea, we agree that it's possible and that we're heading in that direction, that this country and the West at large are heading into a post-Christian era, and it may be not now, maybe it's 50 years from now, 100, but if we're going that direction, it's good to know this. It's good to know that both the scriptures and the history of the church afford us with three different ideas or paradigms or images or options for how the church deals with what we call going into exile. It has not always been the case. In fact, it's very infrequent in Christian history, that Christians have political or cultural influence and power. That is not the norm for the church. And fortunately, we have examples, three specific ones that we're going to talk about today, that are options for faithful Orthodox Christians as they walk the road into exile. And we're going to look at each one of those. The first is what's called the Benedictine op- option, named after St. Benedict, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, these are in your notes. And I, there's a lot of content, so I just put notes on the options. If you want to jot down different things as we're going through each of them, I think that's great. Um, I just want to give kind of broad, uh, broad strokes. So the first is the Benedictine option. The second is what I'm calling the Old Testament option. It's patterned on what the Jews traditionally did and have done in the face of exilic um, context. And the third is called the Christian colony option. And uh, arguably, as we'll see, it's the, it's the uh, paradigm um, that the early church had for dealing with being, quote-unquote, in exile. So these are the three options that we get from Scripture and history. Let's take a look first, uh, look first at the Benedictine option. And I, I bring this one up uh, probably because I think that historically speaking, it's the closest parallel to what we in the church face in the 21st century in the West. Um, you'll, you'll notice just the history right here. In, in uh, 313, Emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor, uh, issues the Edict of Milan, which officially makes Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. So up until 313 AD, for the first 300 or so years of the church, Christians were outlaws. Uh, they were essentially, um, very honestly, criminals. 
Uh, they were believed to be what's called atheists. They did not uh, worship the gods of the state. In 313, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and allowed Christianity to flourish in the empire, which led to, critically, the Council of Nicaea in 325, from which we get the Nicene Creed, which sets the pattern for Christian orthodoxy, confessing a triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit. So you can see that in Rome, uh, there was a, a, an upswing of Christianity. It began to become influential, powerful in the culture. But that didn't last very long. You see, in 376 AD, there was the Goth invasion. Uh, invaders from the north and the east of the empire came down. Uh, they actually sacked Rome in 4, uh, 410 AD. They burned uh, the city. Um, and ultimately, uh, conveniently, this is uh, Gibbon's history, he marks the end of the Christian era of Christendom at 476 AD, when Emperor Romulus was, was forcibly deposed by barbarians. So, barbarians come in, they uh, uh, fra- fracture the, uh, the foundations of, of Christendom and the empire, and they make Christianity, um, they make the culture ultimately post-Christian. There's no longer a Christian state, um, there are no longer Christian rulers or lords, it, it's just done. This is what we call the Dark Ages. Um, the Dark Ages used to be about a thousand years. Now historians say about five, uh, 500 AD to 700 AD was the time in which barbarians ruled the land. There was literally no government. There was no Christian government, certainly. And as far as the eye could see, Christianity had no influence in the culture at large. Well, entering into that situation was a monk named St. Benedict. He developed the Benedictine rule. And what he did is he started to make these little, um, these little islands in the culture. So around, there's barbarians running through, sacking and raiding, and villages are being pillaged and whatnot. And these groups of monks, and ultimately nuns as well, would go and they would, put, they would build thick walls, and then they would, inside these walls, they would become self-sufficient. They would uh, develop crops. They would um, practice uh, their Catholic disciplines. And they uh, ultimately kind of became um, functional little islands in the midst of a chaotic, bar- barbaric, post-Christian world. Uh, Christopher Dawson, he's a, he's a Catholic historian, so he's a big fan of this. He says, uh, Saint, uh, monastic life, quote, was especially suited to the conditions of the new barbarian, you might read, post-Christian pagan society, because it provided little oases of Christianity amidst the destruction and anarchy of the barbar- uh, barbarian invasions. He goes on a few pages later and notes that Benedictine monasteries specifically, originating with the, uh, the Abbey at Monte Cassino in the year 525, were, quote, a little self-contained world. A school of service to the Lord, which is what Benedict himself called it, in which it was possible to live a completely Christian life without any surrender to the lower standards of secular culture. What ultimately we look back and say about this period from 500 to 700 AD is that the Benedictine monks in their monasteries, quote, preserved the light of civilization. The culture around them burned. And yet they, in their little communities, copied down the scriptures, maintained their Christian discipline, and also copied down and fostered um, the theological and philosophical thought from which the church had sprung. And this happens all throughout the Dark Ages, so that when the Dark Ages began to end, when they were finished, there was this, this, uh, this body of knowledge. There was the scriptures, there was philosophy, there was theology that the new culture could appropriate and take and learn, and learn from. So that even though Christendom had failed, it was sort of carried in the bosom of the monks so that when the bad times were over, the culture again could come back to faith, could come back to civilization. And this is why Roman Catholics talk about the, quote, Benedictine option. 
It focuses on the preservation of learning, theology, culture, and Christian disciplines of prayer and worship. It demands wholesale withdrawal from the culture at large. It imposes strict behavioral codes. If you want to live in the monastery, there's a very, very strict way of going about it. And if you can't handle it, you won't survive there. It has a kind of oasis mission. The way that the the monks drew people to Christianity was to offer sanctuary from a culture that was utterly chaotic and and destructive around them. So that ideally what would happen is in these little cloisters, people would actually come and knock on the doors when the barbarians were threatening to come into the gates. They would come in, live with the monks for a time until the burnings had passed, and then would exit, uh, hopefully, ideally, with uh, the name of Jesus on their lips. However, I I think there's some problems with the Benedictine option, even though I do think that it is probably the closest historical parallel to what the church may or may not be facing at this time. If things go the way that they might go, um, it will very much look as though what was a Christian culture, a Christendom at large, has been basically taken over um, and wrecked by pagan forces. But it's intuitively compelling, but incomplete for a number of reasons. Number one, it relies on geographical isolation, which is no longer possible. Uh, if you've used Google um, Earth, and I've done this because sometimes I like to uh, you know, go back to Japan, and I can't actually go back because that would be really expensive, and I don't think Aaron would be happy there, nor my kids. But so I go on Google Earth, and I just scroll over, and I was living in this rural village in Japan. I can just scroll over to Japan, and then I get about the center of the country. I just begin expanding, and the satellite images just zoom in, and suddenly I'm right back where I was. I can actually look. I can find the house I lived in. In Akagi Village, in Japan, I can do that immediately at the tip of my fingers. And what I think that suggests to us is that geographical isolation is no longer a possibility. You see, the monks, they could just run off. If you see pictures of, of uh, monasteries in uh, Italy and all of Europe, you'll notice that they, they're natu- they, they find like the best, most secluded, out-of-the-way place, and they go and just build there, and they're protected so that the culture can't get in. There's fires all around, but the monks are safe because they're isolated, they're secluded. But that's no longer possible in the 21st century. When you've got GPS, there's no way that you can get away. You can get off the grid, even though apparently a lot of people are trying. It just doesn't work. Moreover, the monks had an advantage over the culture. Number one, the Goths and the invading barbarians were mostly illiterate, and they didn't have any ideology, really. They were just like, let's sack and pillage, because that sounds fun. That's not the case anymore. You know, if you try to retreat, isolate yourself ideologically, if you've got an internet connection, or your kids do, they are not going to be cut off from the culture at large. They're going to be inundated with the culture, whether you like it or not. They can find whatever they like on Wikipedia or some even less reputable website. You can't shut out the culture. And so I wonder if the Benedictine option is really even an option at all, although it might be. The last thing that concerns me about the Benedictine option is that it relies, I think, more, and this is more of a Roman Catholic thing than than a Protestant thing, but it it relies more on tradition and and practices of the church rather than scripture. If you go through scripture, you're not going to find a lot of places that recommend guys going off and living together and gardening and praying and working and girls doing the same thing over here. That's just not something that scripture really knows. And so I worry that maybe if we, if we adopted that, that we would be going off um, in a direction that just doesn't have a lot of scriptural basis. And so I have some reservations about the Benedictine option, but, 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 because I like research and scholarship, the idea of like a whole bunch of people just getting around 
you know, just studying all the time. That's pretty awesome. So you guys might not want to, you know, do that, but I'm going to. I, I can't wait. I mean, so if, if the church goes that way, I'm going to be pretty stoked. That would be a lot of fun for me, <laughs> uh, even though I'm not sure it's the, the call. That's the Benedictine option. The second option uh, from, and this is where we begin really getting in the scriptures uh, more, is called what I call, like to call the Old Testament option, possibly the Jewish option. Um, let's look at Jeremiah 29. And it's a, it's a shame that Doug's not here because his favorite verse in the Bible is taken from this passage. Um, and maybe it's your, your favorite as well, but it goes like this. It says, um, The Lord, Yahweh of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, pro- proclaims to all the exiles I have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. You're going into exile. That's happening. You were in, you know, you were the people of God in Jerusalem. Now you're going to be the people of God in, in the midst of pagan oppressors. This is what I tell you to do. Build houses. Settle down. Cultivate gardens. Eat what they produce. Get married. Have children. And then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they too may have children. Increase the number there so that you don't dwindle away. Then I want you to promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. You're not going to go to Babylon and try and burn it down. Instead, you're going to go to Babylon and you're going to seek its prosperity, its welfare. Pray to Yahweh for it because your future depends on its welfare. Guess what? If you're living in Babylon and Babylon burns to the grounds, you're burning too. And I think we kind of get four basic um, elements from this text about what it looks like for the people of God embracing the Jewish or Old Testament option to exile, to go into exile. There's the build houses, cultivate gardens, and eat from them. There's the issue of, of husbands and wives and finding a mate. There's the importance of children and procreation, which is really actually very critical. And then there's the pursuit of the welfare of the city. Let's just look at each of those really quickly. It's interesting, and, and you can actually think about this. You can see this all throughout the, the scriptures in the Old Testament. You can see the Jewish people doing this. The first thing that they do is they go, when they're in exile, they go and they build houses, cultivate gardens, and eat from them. What this really means is they're creating an infrastructure in the midst of the larger culture that, uh, that lasts, that can survive the culture. It's, it's done in such a way that they don't become assimilated to the culture. Interesting. How many of you people know a Hittite? Nobody's met a Hittite. There are no Hittites. And yet, and yet, many of you know, well, Elias is here, you know someone who's Jewish. That's a fascinating fact of history. There are no Amorites or Hittites or any of those guys. Philistines, they're all gone because they were carted off to exile. They failed to do this thing, create an infrastructure that lasts, and they assimilated to the culture they were a part of. They ceased to exist as people. The Jews alone in human history have not done this. It's because, primarily, they create an infrastructure that lasts. They develop economic systems that can withstand pagan, and as the Jews would say today, Gentile, interference. And then they make that community attractive to others. We, um, we can see this all the time in, in, the, Old, in the Old Testament. Um, just think about, for example, Nehemiah. Right? Nehemiah. I mean, he goes to Babylon, and that dude is a part of a network of Jews who all are looking to go back to Jerusalem. He rises up through the ranks. He's protected. He's, he's maintained his Jewishness. Or Daniel does the same exact thing. Esther, coming up, does something similar. Another thing that, that God calls through the prophet Jeremiah is to find husbands and wives. 
Now, find. Find is the critical word there. In America, you know, finding a husband or a wife is really the responsibility of someone who is totally under the control of their hormones, who has a very limited vision of what the world is like, and yet through the magical laws of sexual attraction, um, finds the one. That is not the traditional way of going about things. Uh, we actually have an uh, apocryphal text, um, uh, Tobit, which is about a, a Jewish man who's very faithful in the midst of exile. And one of the most important things he does in his life is seek out a good Jewish girl for his son, Tobias. And it's miraculous how it all turns out, but, but he's, he's going to find someone within the network of, of the Jews, someone that uh, will be equally yoked, you might say, in, in, in our Protestant ter- in terminology. And then in, by, by, by having that equal yoke, they're able to preserve Jewish culture and identity in the midst of a larger pagan context. Now, husbands and wives are known to do uh, one thing very well, and that is have children and increase. Think about the story of um, Joseph and then Moses in the Old Testament. What happens? The Jews are taken off into exile in Egypt, and yet in their small community, they begin procreating. And they do it so well that the Egyptians start to get worried. They're like, we've got too many slaves, and if they figure out how powerful they are, we're done. The idea is you thrive regardless of your environment. Why? Why? Because demography, demographics is destiny. You don't have kids, you will go extinct. Your way of life, your faith will disappear. In the midst of of a hostile culture, and friends, I, I thank God that if we do embrace the Old Testament option, that Coast Bible Church is leading the charge here. Your goal is to procreate. You win, you win the culture war by outlasting and outnumbering the enemies. Um, I'm, I, insofar as we're in the midst of a culture war now, I, I, I think we're doing pretty well. I think that uh, those who are our cultural betters are not procreating, and, and we are. Leading the way. Me? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with a different option. Remember, I like the Benedictine option. <laughs> You know, no kids, a bunch of studying, right? (laughs) Uh, The last point we saw in that Jeremiah text was the welfare of the city. And this is a, 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 the idea being that if you have a group of people, so you've got your um, your, your, your Jews in, in Babylon or in Egypt or wherever, and they are just by themselves doing nothing of good for the community, well, they're going to be hated. What if you've got some, some Daniels, or you've got some Esthers, or you've got some people who, by their uh, stunning good looks or fantastic, oh, uh, Joseph, um, really great economic skills, whatever it is, they contribute to the flourishing of the empire itself. What if they're contributing to the flourishing of the city? Well, then you're much less likely to want to kill them or take away their god. The community of faith is least threatened when it is least threatening. This is the principle behind the idea of the welfare of the city. God protects the Jewish remnant because the Jewish remnant doesn't make too many waves. You hear in our economy, our, our talk of economy, a high tide raises all boats. If you want everyone to like you, Mr. President, your job is to magically improve the economy, right? Because if everyone's doing well, then no one's going to want to throw you out of office because you're doing well. The same principle applies to the community of faith. 
Now, I, again, I, I think, I mean, God obviously commands this in Jeremiah. This is exactly what God says to the Jewish uh, people to do. However, I don't know that that necessarily means that God's saying that to the church today if we are heading into a post-Christian context. Now let's look at it. The example of the Jews and the Old Testament option is ambiguous. Positively, there are good things. It maintains social and cultural uh, cohesion. No Hittites, yes Jews. It offers the possibility of prosperity and influence, and we see this again throughout Scripture. Joseph becomes second in all of Egypt. Uh, Daniel is um, uh, a... A wise counselor of the king, Nehemiah, likewise, and then even gathers the political influence to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. Esther, who saves her people. Um, these are the, the, the types of advantages that happen when you seek the welfare of the city, when you find husbands and wives equally yoked and you have children. However, we do notice from history that there are negative um, aspects as well. The Old Testament option often results in jealousy and unwanted attention from pagans. In each one of those different um, stories I just mentioned, Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then you can also think of Moses, you're going to realize that (laughs) if you have a group of people who don't follow the rules of the culture at large, who are doing their own thing with their own diet, their own uh, laws, and they seem to be doing very, very well, well, you can imagine the rest of the people in the culture being a little bit upset, a little bit jealous. And it's not too long before you have things like pogroms, the Shoah, which is um, what we call the Holocaust. Moreover, um, having this kind of community that's sort of like a little, you know, a little um, set of Jews in the midst of a culture at large where there's very little interaction between uh, the, the Jewish people and, and the culture at large, when there's that little interaction, um, sectarianism becomes very important. It's really, really important that you don't eat pork and that you uh, obey the, the washing laws and all these things. And that's what separates you from the pagans. And that you get so focused on those rules, you get so focused on those laws over time, that suddenly you're not being spiritual at all. You're not doing it because it pleases Yahweh. You're doing it as a way to find out who's in and who's out, who marks insiders and marks outsiders. That is exactly the problem with the Pharisees in the New Testament. They've gotten so good at being this little Jewish community in the midst of the Roman Empire that they, uh, good, true you know, God-seeking people are, are excommunicated or kept away from God's people because of the rules. And you could worry that the, at Coast Bible Church or, or the church at large, if we go into a post-Christian nation, you could worry that we might do something like this and get so focused on we do this, 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 and not this, 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 and this, that we would be out utterly... Um, utterly intolerant, not inclusive, not opening, not welcoming. And so the culture at large might just be off there by itself, and we'd be off over here by ourselves, and never the twain shall meet. So there's the Benedictine option, there's the Old Testament option, the last is the Christian colony. The Christian colony, arguably, the, um, at least the view, I'd say, of Pauline uh, Christianity, and possibly the New Testament as a whole. Um, Let me give you an alternate translation of Philippians 3.20. This is the one that says, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? An alternate translation would be, but we are a colony from heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The word that I've rendered colony there is uh, polituma. 
It's a very, it's a vague word. It covers a lot of different stuff. I'm, I've noted here government, civic organization, ruling council, citizenship. The idea is that Paul suggests that Christians live in the world, but as a heavenly civic organization or possessing a heavenly government from, from there, we are here, but our government is there. Well, what that makes us in Rome or the United States or wherever is an invading foreign power. We're a colony from heaven on this view. God has sent out colonials, just as Great Britain sent colonials to India. And the colonials come, we Christians come, and we, we set up our camp in the middle of the culture at large. But we don't play by the culture's rules. If the culture says this is the law, we say no, that's not the law we follow. We follow this law, the heavenly law. And moreover, our colony is not just meant to uh, just sit there. Our colony ultimately is meant to expand. The Indian people might have their own forms of government, but the British colonials are more interested in imposing their forms of government. Uh, This is a cool quote about the Christian colony. Uh, The church exists today as resident aliens, an adventurous colony in a society of unbelief. As a society of unbelief, Western culture is devoid of a sense of journey, of adventure because it lacks belief in much more than the cultivation of an ever-shrinking horizon of self-preservation and self-expression, which I would suggest to you is exactly what Paul encountered when in his missions to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were constantly focused on making me last and expressing my thing that I think is awesome about the world. By contrast, the Christian colony claims this. Jesus Christ is the supreme act of divine intrusion into the world's settled arrangements. We, Christ first, and then we follow an intrusion into this way of doing life. In the Christ, God refuses to stay in his place in the heavenly powers, in the heavenly realms. The message that sustains the colony is not for itself, but for the whole world. The colony having significance only as God's means for saving the whole world. We come in not just to be ourselves and to do our own thing, but to expand, to absorb, to conquer, if you will, the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The colony is God's means of a major offensive against the world for the world. It's war. Like I said, the Christian colony is arguably the strategy of the early church. I would say at least Pauline and probably, I think, the the whole thing. And it's explicitly missional. The goal is to take over by evangelism or absorb the culture at large. Now, in order to do that, you have to have major interaction, robust, I'm calling it here, interaction with the culture. And this is something that evangelicals typically have been very, very good at. Evangelicals have been very good in what we call, quote, engaging the culture, you know, Oh, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you didn't see, you know, the latest movie with, I don't even know who the movie stars are anymore. Keanu, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> hey, Neil, 1999 called. <laughs> they, they want their A-lister back. <laughs> anyway, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm not cool, I'm not hip, I'm not with it. I have my pulse on the culture. If I go to you know, a dance club, I know all the songs because I listen to the radio or the Spotify or the Pandora too. And yet, and yet, in the midst of this robust engagement with the culture at large, 
The Christian colony publicly practices an alternative set of values, commensurate not with the self-preservation and self-expression of the culture at large, but commensurate with the cross of Jesus Christ. Just because I know what's going on with the culture doesn't mean I buy into the culture. It means that I'm looking to subvert the culture or to con- convert the culture or to think in ways that, that relate the culture to the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is. But again, you know, as we saw with the Benedictine and the Old Testament, I think that there are concerns about what it means to become a Christian colony. You see, this interaction with the culture that the Christian colony depends on if it's to be truly missional, can result in the culture colonizing the Christian. And it's really hard to say when this has happened. You know, you're out there, you're, hey, man, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I don't know what's going on. And suddenly you wonder if you've sort of slipped over to the other side and you're like, I think I'm still a Christian, but I definitely know what's going on. The thing that concerns me the most, because I think probably evangelicals tend to go this way the most, um, is that it risks children being lured by the culture. You know, the more I'm engaged with the culture at large, the more I know what's up, what's going on, the more they're going to know what's up and what's going on. And I risk them being caught up with the values of this culture and not the values of the cross in a way that I probably wouldn't if I had a Benedictine or um, Old Testament uh, view of how to be the people of God in the world. Moreover, we risk communal uh, purity because decisions must be made about which cultural practices can be preserved or absorbed in the church and which cannot. This has always been a trouble for the Christian church. We go into Germany, and for whatever reason, around the time of December, they, they put up these, these evergreens, and they put ornaments on them, they give presents to each other. Um, should we do that too? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's Jesus. That's the celebration of the birth of Christ. Let's do Christmas. Well, that was a big question when the church encountered the pagan um, holidays and celebrations. Oh, you know, we celebrate Ishtar, and she's a fertility goddess, and you know, she dies, and then she kind of raises up crops, and we do this around the springtime, and these, and we, oh yeah, no, that's 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 Jesus, that's Easter. We're just gonna. But is that what the church is supposed to do? We have a major example of this in Acts 15 when the church has to decide, the early church, are they going to make um, Gentile converts you know, do things like circumcision? Is that going to continue to be a part of what it means to be a Christian? And there's this big chapter in Acts 15 where they have to fight it out. What parts of Jewish tradition are, are, are maintained as the church goes forward? Well, if we're the Christian colony, we have exactly the same issues. I mean, think about the culture wars of the last 30 years. Rock and roll music. Yes or no Christian culture? Uh, we've gone, yes, rock and roll is awesome. Um, you know, rated R movies, yes or no? I don't know, maybe some rated R movies are okay, but some aren't. I mean, who knows? Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, and, and the list goes on. All these things that the culture at large does, the Christian church has to decide whether or not we absorb or don't absorb. And every time we do, it changes us. It's not like a one-way street. Those things change us just as we change them. Lastly, and this is something I think we see as Christian colonials, is that it ambiguously allows the church to play politics and attempt to overtake the culture. 
This began with Constantine, continues to this day. The question is, what are we supposed to be doing here? How do we convert the culture? Well, one answer to that, especially in a democratic society, is to win elections, right? You know, you couldn't do that back in the day, but nowadays, it's possible for the voice of the church, potentially, to come and set public policy. And so Christians begin to wonder, is that the game we're supposed to play? Is that how we convert the culture? And that's a conversation that continues to this day. One I submit to you that you don't probably have if you're following the Benedictine option or the Old Testament option. And so here we are, CBC in exile, potentially. We have three options. The Benedictine option offers retreats and a vocation of preserving the light of civilization. Man, as a, as a wannabe academic, that just doesn't get any better. The idea that the whole culture is burning out there, but as I'm writing you know, a book, that I'm somehow preserving the future. Wow, sign me up. Preserving the light of civilization at the risk of being what? Impossible to live out in the 21st century. The Old Testament option offers sectarian purity at the risk of inviting persecution and wrongly excluding those who are truly spiritual but don't follow our rules. And the Christian colony offers a missionally minded, engaged paradigm, but but while risking a loss of purity and the possibility of being colonized by the culture. We could take a vote, right? We could all raise our hands. Which one do you want as we head into the post-Christian nation? Well, first I want to say this. I don't think it's possible to know, at least for me, whether or not we are post-Christian, heading to post-Christianity. I think that we need prophetic words to discern this. The church has to raise up people who, in the power of the Spirit, can see the truth as it is and can speak it. Um, I mentioned earlier that you know Trevor, I think, has some propensities in this area. And Trevor himself has told me, he's like, I don't think, I don't think we're post-Christian at all. He says, I think in this area, I see, I see he said rain, maybe spiritual rain. So it could very well be that we're not post-Christian at all. We don't know what time it is, as it were. And even if we did, it would be impossible for us, in, you know, as right here, to choose which of the three options we think is best, unless we have prophetic wisdom to help us make a good choice. And then moreover, I want to suggest that each of these three things is historical in a way. You know, the Benedictine option was back then. Um, we've also got the, uh, uh, the Old Testament option, which was a different context. And then, you know, the early church was definitely, it was not a post-Christian culture that the church was uh, attacking. It was a pagan culture. It had knew nothing of the church. And so I think it's likely that we'll not choose any of these three because we're not looking for another Benedict, another Jeremiah, or a Paul. Instead, if we are heading into a post-Christian age, what the church is looking for now is a different kind of Benedict or Jeremiah or Paul. A different kind of doing these options. A different way. One that's specifically suited to the 21st century and the West, one that takes into account where we are and yet also is richly um, furnished by the tradition of the scriptures. Um, I'm going to leave you almost with this. This is Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher at Notre Dame. He says, what matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral, and by intellectual and moral he means Christian, life can be sustained through the new dark ages, which are already upon us. And if the tradition of the virtues, he means Christian life, was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages, we are not entirely without grounds of hope. Why? 
This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They've already been governing us for some time. And it's our lack of consciousness of this that constitutes part of our predicament. We are waiting not for a Godot, um, a person who's never going to show up, but for another, doubtless very different, St. Benedict. Someone who can see the culture for what it is, who's richly uh, versed in the tradition of the scriptures, and then can prophetically speak about what kind of life we live out in the midst of that. A different St. Benedict would likely develop forms of life that draw on without replicating the three options. The new vision must preserve the light of civilization. I'm working on it. It must provide an alternative to the world's networks of economy, family life, and prosperity because as the culture hates us more and more, we're going to need more and more people who can provide those things. And yet I think that it will demand missional, possibly political, I'm not certain about that, engagement. What does that look like? Well, if you haven't guessed already, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I, I can look sort of at the past and, and see what, what the early church did and what the Jews in the Old Testament did and even after, and, and I can see what St. Benedict did, but I don't know what Coast Bible Church does. We cut Jeremiah off in the middle, though, didn't we? He was telling the Jews an important thing but it's the ending, I think, that matters the most. Yahweh proclaims, when Babylon or post-Christian America's 70 years or however many years are up, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have in mind for you, Coast Bible Church, declares Yahweh. They are plans for peace not disaster, to give you a future filled with hope. When you call on me and come and pray to me, whether it's in the monasteries of St. Benedict, whether it's in the communities in Babylon, whether it's in the early church, the colony of Christians, when you call and pray, when you come, call and pray to me, I will listen. When you search for me, yes, search for me with all your heart, figure out what life looks like in the midst of this environment, you will find me. I will be present for you, declares Yahweh God, and I will end your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have scattered you, and I will bring you home after your long exile, declares Yahweh God of angel armies. Friends, I cannot tell you how we will survive the post-Christian age if indeed it comes. But I can promise you this. God does not forget his people he has a plan to prosper them, and he always calls them back from exile. So as we discern that together, know that our future is one that is prosperous, and it ends in a heavenly city. Let's pray. Father, many of us worry. Many of us uh, worry that we are walking into exile. That we're walking into a world that's absent of your presence, that's absent Christian influence, that's absent Christian power, we, we worry that we will become exiles. And for those, and for us, that means exiles in our own country. 
God, we know, though, we know, though, that you have preserved your people. You have preserved your people in circumstances not unlike this in the past. St. Benedict in the monastery, your call to your people in Babylon, and the Christian colony that absorbs the world. God, I pray that you will raise up fresh vision, fresh fire, fresh insight in this place, in these people, in us, so that we can begin to become a different version of those things, that we can begin to have the resources, intellectual, spiritual, moral, to maintain who we are as your people, to not forsake the tradition you've given to us, and ultimately, ultimately to bless the world with it. We call on your spirit now, God, knowing that he is faithful, and knowing that when we seek you out, we will find you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.